What's your problem? What's your solution? This is an interview series about changing the world. The news about global warming is almost invariably bad. Project Drawdown turns the doom of global warming into opportunity, innovation and solutions. Drawdown's executive director, Jonathan Foley, has spent over two decades as a researcher and lecturer of environmental issues. John Foley is an environmental leader and a forward-thinking scientist. Welcome to Camp Solutions. Welcome, Jonathan. You're leading Project Drawdown, which is also a book, this book. Mm -hmm. What's the message of Drawdown? Well, the message of Drawdown is really focused on that point in time in the future where we not just slow down climate change, we actually can stop it and draw down pollution and reverse climate change. And the point of Drawdown, the book, and our whole uh, thesis is that not only is that possible, it's possible today. It's possible with technologies we have right now. And if we deploy them, we'd actually not only fix the atmosphere and begin to reverse climate change, we could do it in a way that would actually save the planet tremendous amounts of money, create incredible numbers of jobs, and eventually restore our climate back to what it should be. So the, the, the subtitle of the book and, and, and the, you know, the Mm -hmm. summary of the mission is the, the most comprehensive plan ever proposed to reverse global warming. Now, we have been talking about global, global warming for about two decades. How yeah. can it be that we only now come up with a plan? Well, it's kind of funny. Uh, Paul Hawken, who uh, founded this organization, and a lot of people who worked with him, were frustrated because they've gone to climate conference after climate conference where they're hearing about the problems of climate change again and again and again. But nobody was really talking about the solutions, or if they were, they were talking about maybe just one little group of them. Nobody had really put together the whole plan and asked, hey, if you added up all the solutions that are on the table, one, would they be enough? And two, which ones would you start with? And strangely enough, the science community, the policy community, the governments of the world had not actually bothered to do that. So that's why Drawdown becomes such a really important piece uh, to put out in the world. It looked at all of the solutions, it compared them on an equal footing of an apple-to-apple-to-apple -to -apple comparison and was able to show that when you add them together, we have more than enough to solve the problem. And secondly, we could find which ones actually are probably the most viable and which ones you might start a little bit later. And uh, that turned out to be a really important contribution to the whole conversation. For most people, solving the problem of global warming means more solar panels, more windmills, uh, yes, mm -hmm. eat less meat, electric cars is helpful, uh, probably plant trees. But, you know, that's five, six solutions and you have 80, so many more. So what, mm -hmm. what else is there that is important to solve this problem? Well, when you think about solving climate change, it sounds so simple, but you have to step back and remember what really causes it. So Drawdown looked beyond energy, it looked beyond the simple things, and found that a lot of the solutions had to do with underlying things that were kind of at the foundation of all of those, especially the growth of our population and who had economic power. Turns out those things were also really important. So interestingly, to me anyway, one of the biggest solutions of all in Drawdown were a set of solutions focusing on women and, or young women and girls. Uh, talking about their access to fertility planning, access to education, but also uh, in smallholder agriculture and uh, how we make decisions in the home. Turns out that uh, women have a much bigger role to play than men in most of the world's climate solutions, and that's fantastic. So, so to go into that topic, so if you take family planning and educational right. girls together, mm -hmm. that would be the biggest solution to, clo to global warming, I think, in, in your, yeah, in your list. Yep. So 
But help us, help me see what what are we doing then? I mean, yes, sending more girls to school, I can right. see that we do that. But mm -hmm. what's the impact then, and why does that help? Well, it's very interesting. Yeah, if you take these two solutions, uh, kind of family planning and girls' education, you add them together, they're right up there at the top uh, with other solutions as some of the most effective things we can do. You'd be like, why? What the heck does that got to do with climate change? Yeah. Well, it has everything to do with climate change because it helps determine the future course of our population growth. That if we end up with 8 billion people or 9 billion or 10 billion will matter a lot to climate change because those extra billions will be consuming things that generate greenhouse gases. So, you know, the environmental community has always talked about population, but we looked at it in a more detailed way. And we're not calling it population control or anything coercive or anything like that. Nobody wants that. But rather about the opportunities to lift up the lives of girls and young women and show that by education and access to doctors, they could live better lives. And when they do that, they often have uh, spacing out their children a little bit later and a little bit fewer in their lifetime because they want to. Nobody's coercing them. It's just education and opportunity happening here. And so that combination of uh, family planning and education and lifting up the lives of young women around the world it has so many benefits, of course, to communities and to human rights and the economy worldwide. But even to climate change, it turns out to be one of the biggest levers we found. But how do you model girls going to school? What are the trends there and, and family mm -hmm. planning? These are such if you like, political um, uh, policy-related issues that it's so hard to see how you plan on that. Well, it turns out the way of history to guide us because we've actually had a really big shift in what we call the demographic transition. Fifty years ago, the average woman on Earth had over five children. Today, it's between two and 2.5 for the global average. They cut in more than in half in just two generations. The behavior of young women today is changing dramatically as they get more and more connected through social media, through yes. the internet, learning how other women around the world live, that they have choices, they have opportunities that they uh, and their mothers may not have had until recently. And so we start to see this very big change in behavior as young women and girls decide their future about how many children they want and when they want them, and having the access to medicine and opportunity to make that choice for themselves. We've seen that in the past, uh, over the last 50 years, and we can model that relationship in the future, looking at when girls get opportunities, how many children do they have, and when do they have them. And the biggest correlation in the world of this is the more educated women are, the fewer children they will have. And that holds up over cultures and over countries and over time and remarkably well. And it turns out to be one of the best things we can do if you are concerned about population. Girls' education and family planning are the two things you do. And so one of the most powerful change, elements of change is something that we don't even relate to, to the policies of global warming, right? That's what well, you're that's, actually saying. Well, exactly. Um, as you said before, a lot of the times when we think about uh, the solutions to climate change, we, we, we make this mistake of jumping immediately to just energy technologies and only CO2. Uh, that's only 60% of the problem, by the way, is the energy CO2 part of it. The other 40% is everything else. And then we forget to look at the underlying social, technological, yeah. and behavioral changes as well, yeah. about, hmm, how many people are gonna be born in the future? Yeah. It's a lot less than we thought, it yeah. turns out, and that's good. Uh, what do people consume? Uh, what kinds of diets will the world want in the future? All of those levers are still in play. What I find so interesting is that it seems that 
at least part of our society is addicted to fear. We need to have sort of this this story that tells us the end of times is coming, and 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 you know, you right. just happen to be alive to be part of it yeah, of yeah. the end of times. So. And at the same time, we are also a problem-solving machine, probably the best that's ever been on the planet. So you raised a really good point. I wrestle with this almost every day. Um, a lot of the environmental messages we have today are invoking fear, uh, because it is scary. There are some pretty scary things happening, no yeah. question. But when you only frame things as fear, it fires a certain part of the brain, the amygdala, and that that kind of fires off this fight or flight reaction. That it's very hard to solve problems when you're feeling like that. When you're fearful. You're not constructive. You can't think. You don't solve problems. You just run or fight, and that's it. Uh, this is not helpful in the long run. It's good to be alarmed and concerned, but not afraid or panicking. Panic is a bad strategy for solving problems. The other extreme, though, is the kind of um, the happy uh, Pollyanna kind of perspective. Like, oh, don't worry. The markets will solve it. The technology will solve. It. The invisible hands will solve it. Yeah. What we need is the hands in front of us right now. These hands and your hands and everybody's hands. These are the ones that are going to solve the problem. So I'm, I'm looking for that middle narrative of saying, look, uh, drawdown shows that yes, we have the technologies and economic tools to solve the problem. We have to be hopeful, not blindly optimistic that everything will be okay if we do nothing, but hopeful. And courageous. Uh, if we don't believe we can solve climate change, how will we? And most importantly, we have to get up and get to work. What is your problem? <laughs> well, can I have two answers? One is um, we have to change the mindset of people to believe that solving climate change is possible. Again, if, you know, we don't believe it, we won't do it. Secondly, we have to deploy the tools we have as quickly and safely and equitably as possible. So that's what Drawdown's trying to do: change the narrative, deploy the tools. This is not the first, and it won't be the last no, no. global crisis we've ever faced. There was the Cold War. There's civil rights movements, World War II, the Depression. Go back and back and back. There's dozens of these. Uh, I think of Martin Luther King, for example. You know, he told us to have a dream. He didn't say, "I have a nightmare." He said, "I have a dream." Yeah. It's a dream of a better world where every child has an He's opportunity. Looking beyond the problem, really. right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, set an aspirational goal yeah. and show us how to get there and challenge us, even if it's uncomfortable for some in power. Challenge us to realize that actually is the better world. Yeah. We did that also with apartheid, uh, the Cold War, uh, Kennedy getting us to the moon, or believing that we should do more than just be selfish recipients of government largesse, yeah. but to do something back for our country. Everything I was taught when I was a child that was impossible, like gay marriage, an African American president, the end of apartheid, the end of the Cold War, not having a thermonuclear exchange, and so on—all those impossible things not only turned out to be possible, they turned to be inevitable. So when people tell me, "Oh, we can't solve climate change," I'm like, "Oh yeah, really? You want to <laughs> bring it that. on?" <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think we can actually, if yeah. we believe we can, and we just do the work. That's what solved problems in the past: yeah. is courage and work. That's what we need today. So, when you look at the drawdown solutions, 80 solutions, the yep. ones that you present, what is the one that that was for you the most striking? I mean, you were basically doing the research. You didn't know what yeah. you would come up with. What did surprise you the most? The number one solution in this scenario that's published in the book was refrigeration. Yes. The gases we use in air conditioners and refrigeration coils, these uh, hydrofluorocarbons. They're safe for the ozone layer, the problem we had back in the 70s, but they're actually not safe for our climate. Yeah. If those leak out into the atmosphere, a molecule of these hydrofluorocarbons are thousands of times more powerful 
than a molecule of CO2 in trapping heat. Yes. So it turned out to be the number one solution. I never even thought of that until this analysis was put together. And even that problem can be solved. The technology is there. Yeah. You know, when we dump off uh, an old refrigerator or an air conditioning system or freezers from a big warehouse or whatever into a landfill, we should make sure we capture and destroy those hydrofluorocarbons. They should never be allowed to leak into the atmosphere. The new refrigerators we buy today, are they still all of them problematic or are they... Yeah, it turns out refrigerators we buy today are far more energy efficient yes. than what we had before, but the gases the gas and the coils the are still gases that trap a lot of heat in the atmosphere. Now again, they're ozone safe, but they're not climate safe. Yeah. We can have gases that are both ozone safe and climate safe. We could use, for example, ammonia, yeah. a very simple gas. It's not quite as efficient as a heat transport medium, but it's pretty good and it's climate safe and ozone safe and it's readily abundant. But naturally there's a lot of sunk capital into making what we do make, a lot of special interests who want to keep doing it, and the usual thing. But we have to move and eventually we will but in the meantime, let's make sure when we dispose of hydrofluorocarbons, we capture them before they leak into the atmosphere. So let's talk about transportation. Recently, I was talking to a big engineering firm uh, out of Kansas City, and they told me, you know, we are no longer advising any city to uh, implement public transit systems because the public transit cannot compete with the efficiency of driverless cars. Do you see that? I think it's an interesting idea. I think we'll probably need both. I mean, the driverless car uh, idea still, uh, maybe from a purely engineering point of view, might actually have fewer emissions per passenger mile than some mass transit system. But it doesn't solve the equity problem. It doesn't solve the injustice problem. There are a lot of people in urban areas in this country especially, but around the world, who will never have the money to buy a car, especially some fancy automated one. They're going to be expensive at first. Yes. So I think we have uh, to look not just at the kind of simple climate solutions. We have to look at like who's affected by this. Uh, especially the people who need to get to work who don't have the money to buy a car. Public transit serves multiple purposes. It isn't just about climate change. And the best solutions to climate change are hopefully the best for your community and solving problems of inequity and justice as well. Yeah. So that's where I kind of uh, have a little bit of um, pause when it comes to the fancy automated you know, $100,000 know, um, you know, smart Tesla thing or whatever. You know, I'd love to have one of those, it'd be great. Yeah. But uh, that may be a ways off and not everybody's gonna have that. So we'll need both solutions, kind of the high tech and the trusted true thing we have today. I think we need both. So um, you've been, as you said, you know, for almost three decades been in this business of, of <laughs> energy and global warming, climate change. Right, yeah. What has, and what do you think from all that experience, all that research that you've done, what is the most promising development so far that you've seen? that I think we're beginning to reach a tipping point of awareness about climate change. I hope that we also have a tipping point of courage to solve it, and that we start to see leadership emerge from other places. That's what's been, uh, been pleasantly surprising to me, is the leadership of um, the governor of California, the, for the last governor, Jerry Brown, mm -hmm. signed a bill called SB 100 that requires the entire electrical grid of California to be carbon neutral by 2045. Yeah. Sounds impressive, it is. That's 15%, though, only 15% of California's emissions come from electricity. Yeah. The same day, though, he signed that bill, he signed another thing, an executive order, that required the entire California economy to be carbon neutral by 2045. And then he left and handed it to Gavin Newsom, the next governor. <laughs> Good move, you know, yeah. pretty smart. Um, but we now have another governor who's committed deeply to climate solutions. I don't think he can get elected in California without being that way. Yeah. And we're the fifth largest economy in the planet today. It's just yeah. California. Yeah. That's amazing. That could change the rest of the U.S. 
And you see leadership here, you see it in like New York from Michael Bloomberg when he was mayor and other things. You see Fortune 500 leaders, you see this being mentioned in Davos, and Aspen, at TED. And I think we're starting to see smart leaders in different places assume the mantle of climate leadership. That's where we'll find salvation. Politics is a problem. Yeah. What, say for a moment, you could be a dictator of uh, even the planet. What would you do? What, <laughs> how would you break that deadlock? What do we need there? What's the, the one rule we need to change? Or The biggest thing is we need to level the playing field as a political economy. There's a big thumb on the scale right now in favor of fossil fuels, in favor of big agriculture, in favor of nasty materials, because they're the ones in power. They're the ones who can pay off the politicians, let's be honest. Removing that thumb from the scale will be helpful. Maybe if we want to put a thumb on the other side of the scale that says, hey, these technologies over here, better agriculture, better energy, better materials and buildings are good for all of us, not just a special interest, but human interest. It creates jobs, it improves local environmental conditions immediately, and it protects us from future climate change. That's what we need to do. And whether it's a carbon tax, cap and trade, whatever you want to call it, but evening out the playing field so that we can put more into the technologies that really would be beneficial for us. It's interesting you mentioned a carbon tax because that's not one of the solutions in the drawdown list. Well, that's right. We, we're very precise to define a solution to global warming as something that actually changes the gases in the air. You know, it has a physical, chemical, material impact on the atmosphere. Otherwise, we don't count it. Because policies really are just pieces of paper. They don't affect the atmosphere until they make these solutions more likely to happen. So we talk about solutions being things that you know, change the air and policies implement the solutions. We call policies and capital and behavior accelerators of solutions, but not solutions per se. Uh, a carbon tax is really, again, a piece of paper, but if you implement it, then, then it sets off a cascade where solutions like electric vehicles, solar panels, and better agriculture become more oftenly used, uh, more prevalent, and more deployed. So you chose this career of science and environment yeah. many years ago. Why mm -hmm. did you do that? What attracted you in this field? <laughs> well, I was one of those kids who always knew he wanted to be a scientist, but I wanted to be an astronomer first. So when I went to college, I studied physics and astronomy. And I had a bit of an epiphany, or I don't know, maybe a, a bad dream or something. I don't know what it was. But about my sophomore or junior year, I realized, wait a minute, uh, th those planets out there can wait. Mm -hmm. This one can't. <laughs> you know, we're all living in this incredible moment in human history where the next millennia uh, and all the people who live after us, the lives they leave, the planet we're going to have will be determined on our watch. And I think about that a lot. I think about previous generations that sacrificed, that worked really hard lives and gave everything so we could benefit from their experience, so we could live better lives. Yeah. There's this, you know, unspoken covenant of we should do the best we can so the people that come after us, our children, can live a better life. We've been the inheritors of that covenant for generations, so yeah. what's incumbent upon us? And so I switched from astronomy and physics, even though I still love that stuff, did my PhD in atmospheric science and oceanography, and been focusing on things like climate change and the world's ecosystems ever since. And, um, you know, yeah, I look up at the stars once in a while, of course, like we all should, but I've got to keep my eye on the prize, which is the, the ground under our feet and the planet we share ourselves and the planet we're going to leave for the next generation. That's, that's my career, and I think it's the job of all of us to do that well. You describe it so beautifully, and it's so interesting that, you know, I think many of us recognize that moment in college and university <laughs> that we have these beliefs, and we 
definitely know that that's the kind of contribution we want to make. And right. isn't it interesting that we then live in a society that does, I mean, there's so few of you and there's so many people doing things that don't help. Well, I think we all can help in our own way. I mean, uh, I, I mean, there are people who've dedicated their entire lives to these issues, of course, but not just scientists. There are theologians, there are activists, there are politicians, there are business people, there are creators, there are storytellers like you who are so, uh, so, so important. And I think the web that we weave together is what really will be the fabric that holds this planet together. We need to work across our traditional uh, disciplines and silos to really collaborate in changing this world. And it may be the unlikely heroes, the people we don't expect to come to the table who really have the best ideas. I hope that the, you know, the next big solutions to climate change that we will put in the next book maybe aren't coming out of some university or from Elon Musk laboratory, or it might be some guy in a garage somewhere, or somebody in the tropics who has a better way of farming. Uh, maybe a girl in Tanzania who thinks of another social justice movement, or this young woman in Sweden who's captivating the world by uh, striking in front of her school, talking about climate change. Um, so these unlikely heroes and heroines uh, are the ones I'm gonna be looking for uh, to help buoy all of us into a better future. I think we'll need that. Many people feel like it doesn't matter the personal thing you do because I'm only one out of eight billion people, so it doesn't matter whether I eat meat or not. But for you, on a personal level, what, what do you do to, to resolve the problem of global warming on a daily basis? So personally, you know, I drove here in a car that was purely powered by electrons. There's no, it's an electric car. Uh, it's powered by the sun and wind here in San Francisco, thankfully. I eat a little bit of meat, but not much and uh, try to cut back on that dramatically. And I really think about food waste a lot. My personal carbon budget is about maybe a third of the average Americans. But for my, uh, ironically, my professional carbon budget is much higher due to airline travel, ironically to meetings on climate change. Yes. So we need to work on that too. And thankfully, uh, video conferencing and telepresence is getting much, much better in the last couple of years. And so we're gonna be working on that as well. So we do need individual actions, but it's just not one individual, it's individual's action. And we need to amplify what we do as individuals by modeling it and sharing it with others and be encouraging. Uh, not blame and shame, that doesn't work. Uh, pointing fingers at people, saying they're bad people is a very poor strategy to win friends. But uh, taking these steps, do uh, they do matter and they ultimately are absolutely necessary. This is an unfair question, I, yeah. I, I'll give you that, but um, <laughs> what's the solution, the, the to, solution. To, this, to this big, huge problem? If you had to give it one solution, what is it? <laughs> well, the one solution to global warming is to know that there isn't one solution to global warming. That's, I mean, I hate to be a smart ass about it, but that yeah. is the answer. Uh, and also, I guess the second part of that would be to have courage and determination in the face of a daunting challenge, not to give up, not to be in denial, not to be in despair, to stand up. Uh, our founder, Paul Hawken, likes to say, climate change is game over? Hell no, it's game on. Mm -hmm. Go solve this problem. So many generations before us have tackled incredible challenges, whether it's the Depression or defeating fascism in World War II or even you know the Watergate era or the 60s and the Civil Rights Movement. We have done great things when we put our minds to it. We need to do that again. And we can only do that by staring down the problem with hope and courage and determination, knowing we may fail, but not giving up. I'm not gonna fail by just sitting down. I wanna fail on my feet if we're gonna fail and get out there and solve this problem the best we can. And I actually believe we're gonna pull it off. I really think we can and we will, but defeatism is not a good way to go. Thank you.
drawdown, the first comprehensive plan ever proposed to reverse global warming. It's a very inspiring message. We have the solutions and they are already happening. This was Camp Solutions. See you next time.